0: Neonatal care has improved greatly in recent years. As an unintended consequence of these advances, more babies born with malformations such as congenital diaphragmatic hernia survive and with more severe malformations than in the past. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor in Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Pramod Puligandla, Professor of Pediatric Surgery, Pediatrics and Surgery at McGill University, Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Pouligandla is here to talk to us about a guideline from the Canadian Congenital Diaphragmatic Hernia Collaborative Working Group on the diagnosis and management of this condition. Pramod was the project lead for the development of the guideline. I've reached him in Montreal. Welcome, Pramod.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Diane.
0: We're so glad that you're able to join us today. So, just so all that our listeners are starting with the same level of information, can you remind us what a congenital diaphragmatic hernia is and how commonly it occurs in Canada?
1: A congenital diaphragmatic hernia is is a rare congenital anomaly that occurs in approximately one in 3,000 live births. It occurs when there's a defect or a hole in the muscle called the diaphragm that separates the chest from the abdomen and allows The passage of abdominal contents, including intestine and solid organs, into the chest.
0: When a baby has this, what are the short and long term dangers associated with this condition?
1: So, congenital diaphragmatic hernia or CDH uh, likely represents one of the most physiologically complex situations we deal with in our intensive care units. The early morbidity and mortality associated with CDH relates to the degree of pulmonary hypoplasia, or lung underdevelopment, and the development of pulmonary hypertension. These infants, in addition to significant respiratory distress, often experience cardiac dysfunction as well. So the severity of the pulmonary hypoplasia and the severity of the pulmonary hypertension directly correlate with the size of the defect in the diaphragm. Over the long term, infants with CDH often experience multi-system morbidity, and this can affect their growth, their overall development, their neurodevelopment, such as learning and hearing, as well as specific health issues that can affect the lungs, the heart, and the musculoskeletal system.
0: So it sounds like from what you're saying, obviously, the size of the hernia then will affect uh, infants individually in terms of the complications that you've mentioned.
1: That is correct. Thankfully, um, I would say the majority of infants have a reasonable course uh, after uh, birth uh, and can be managed appropriately and surgically corrected. But there are still a significant number of infants that have quite complicated hospital stays and, re- and require uh, intensive therapy. Okay. So
0: just for our listeners, for, for ease of discussion, instead of saying congenital diaphragmatic hernia each time, we'll, we'll call it CDH, so um, people will know when we, when we use that term. So your group spent a great deal of time developing a guideline. Why was there a need for, for a guideline on CDH?
1: So as little as about 25 years ago, uh, CDH was uh, equated with very poor outcomes. Uh, Pregnancies were being terminated when such a diagnosis was being made antenatally. And infants that were actually undergoing surgery were having experiencing survival rates of approximately 50%. However, and much to the credit of our neonatologists, the physiology of CDH was being better understood. And we also realized that CDH was not a surgical emergency. So with improved intensive care management, Uh, survival improved drastically. However, over the last decade, we've seen a plateau in outcome improvement. Um, Furthermore, when we looked into why these infants uh, were not getting better uh, over time, we realized that there, in fact, was unwanted variation in practice within and between hospitals in Canada. So this unwanted variation is likely a contributor to the stagnation in outcome improvement that we would like to see. As an additional point, uh, CDH consumes a disproportionately elevated amount of healthcare resources compared to other infants of similar gestational age. And in one Canadian study, this is estimated to be over $10 million per year. So as a result, knowing that we've identified some unwanted Variation in care and with the hope of optimizing healthcare resource efficiencies, uh, we felt that we actually had a quality improvement op- uh, opportunity by trying to standardize care across Canada.
0: Okay, so w- what is the scope of your guideline? Like in particular, what does it cover and, and what doesn't it cover?
1: So the scope of our guidelines uh, addresses the care of infants with the CDH that have either uh, been diagnosed prenatally or infants who've had a diagnosis made within the first 28 days of life. Um, It does not apply to infants who are born outside of the 28-day period, since these infants often don't experience the same um, level of morbidity and mortality uh, as the younger babies. Um, These guidelines offer recommendations that cover the entire trajectory of care for CDH infants. This includes... Prenatal diagnosis to in hospital management, uh, all the way through to long-term surveillance. Um, the target users for our guidelines include um, many different specialists, including maternal phenol medicine, the intensive care specialists, as well as several uh, pediatric subspecialists, um, as well as anesthesiologists and primary care physicians, who are often leading the charge once patients are discharged from hospital and uh, require long-term follow-up.
0: And this broad scope, the fact that you cover it from antenatally right through, I think is one of the key things that sets these, this guideline apart from other guidelines that exist on this topic.
1: That's correct. Um, so I think the the biggest differences between our guideline and other uh, guidelines that are available, be it locally or those that have been published, is the fact that we've covered the entire trajectory of care. Um, Furthermore, I think we've attempted to uh, specifically address the importance of long-term follow-up because we realize that infants with congenital diaphragmatic hernia do experience long-term morbidity and that we need to continue to follow these patients, sometimes even into adulthood, in order to um, uh, identify problems as they occur, but also to be able to properly manage these patients if those complications occur.
0: Now, the quality of guideline recommendations is only as good as the guideline
1: methods. Can you
0: tell our listeners a bit about what, are the, what, what you did to develop this guideline?
1: Sure. Um, to be honest, this guideline was a long time uh, in the making. Um, we had tried previously, as early as 2012, to put together a library of best practices Yet each of these efforts kind of fizzled. So, what we ended up doing was identifying individuals across the country who had a dedicated interest in CDH management. We were able to, luckily, identify specialists from across the country in many different specialties so that we really had a national representation of all of the stakeholders who were involved in the care of these infants. So, briefly, what we ended up doing is we reviewed the literature to identify existing guidelines. And the two main existing guidelines that were there were those from Europe, from the CDH Euro Consortium, as well as a guideline on the management of pulmonary hypertension produced by the um, American Heart Association and the American Thoracic Society. We underwent a prioritization uh, exercise where we gave these recommendations to the people uh, in the collaborative. And we asked them whether they agreed, felt that uh, agreed with the recommendations as they were uh, presented or whether they required modification or if they just disagreed with them completely. We put together 43 of these recommendations from the two documents and much to our surprise, only six of these were accepted outright. The vast majority of them were required modification and a few of them uh, just did not seem pertinent. So this actually helped us um, identify the fact that, yes, there was a need for these guidelines to be developed uh, and that we had an opportunity uh, to do so. And and more importantly, we actually asked our uh, participants to provide their perspective as to the most important aspects of CDH care as it related to their own personal experience, their own local environment, as well as what they felt was important from a national point of view. We, what we did is we divided each of the participants into work groups. The work groups participated in a uh, systematic review of the literature uh, using the uh, prioritization exercise that we had done previously. We uh, segregated the specific questions that we wanted to answer into themes. Those themes formed the basis of the recommendations. Uh, and each of the work groups presented this data to uh, the group live using PowerPoint and handouts. Um, during our 2 consensus meeting, so we used an anonymous, an anonymous computerized polling program called Poll Everywhere, uh, which allowed us to uh, have individual voting that was done anonymously and provided instantaneous voting results. So we went through after two days uh, in, in a room, we went over 42 different recommendations. Uh, and we were able to create the, uh, the skeleton of our of our guidelines. For those uh, recommendations that did not meet consensus, we went through a, another round of voting. Often the problem that we encountered was the wording of the recommendation. And if we had adjusted the wording, then we often were able to get good or strong consensus each and every time. So at the end of the meeting, uh, the steering committee reviewed all of the recommendations, tweaked the wording, uh, and then sent it back to the participants so that we would get uh, 100% agreement on the final product.
0: You know, what, one of the things just listening to you describe this is uh, I've had the privilege to work with many guideline groups, and it is a it is a labor of love. Um, that is for sure. Um, it takes years of work. Um, and you know, uh, this guideline as with the other ones published in CMAJ are uh, grounded in, you know, rock solid evidence and a really thoughtful process. So, um, congratulations on, on, on getting the guideline completed because I know it's, uh, it's hugely time consuming. So let's talk a little bit then about your recommendations. So the recommendations are split into a few timeframes, frames. um, So the first one is prenatal diagnosis. Can you just briefly tell us about what are the key recommendations that uh, physicians should consider during this time period?
1: So uh, the the essential elements uh, during the prenatal phase of care is really uh, an attempt to determine the severity of the CDH. Uh, And this is really meant to try uh, and identify the severity of the pulmonary hypoplasia that is associated with the CDH. So the recommendations state that the first um, screening test that should be done is an ultrasound-based lung-to-head ratio measurement. Um, this The lung-head ratio, or LHR, is a validated measure of CD severity and is best measured between 22 and 32 weeks of gestational age. What uh, has been added recently is a nomogram of expected uh, ratios um, in normal gestations. And so we are actually able to uh, produce an observed to expected ratio and divide this into different percentages uh, that allow us to predict severity of the CDH. And this is really important because this will guide our antenatal counseling and it will also help the intensive care units prepare for both the human and material resources that they require. Once the, uh, lung head ratio is done by ultrasound, we often will corroborate that with an MRI. And a very similar process is done where we actually measure fetal, total fetal lung volumes. And these again are presented in an observed to expected fashion. Uh, and again helps, uh, confirm the severity of the CDH, of, of the CDHWC.
0: Now, are, are most cases of CDH caught prenatally then? And if not, what proportion of cases are not diagnosed before birth?
1: I would say the majority of cases in Canada are identified prenatally, and this has been reported to be in the range of 70%. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, infants without a prenatal diagnosis actually have a better outcome than those with a prenatal diagnosis. And this is based on the assumption that a small defect will not be identified in ultrasound, and therefore these infants do not experience the same level of pulmonary hypoplasia as other infants with a prenatal diagnosis.
0: If an infant is diagnosed, the first few minutes of life, uh, this child could likely be under distress. What are the key recommendations um, that physicians should consider for that early time after birth for ventilation, hemodynamic support, life support, those types of areas?
1: So, the key principle in the immediate postnatal phase of care is to intubate the patient at first breath so that the baby does not swallow air. Swallowing air distends the stomach and the intestines, which are located in the chest, and this can lead to physiological changes that are very similar to that of attention pneumothorax. So, after intubation, we also realize that the lungs are small and underdeveloped, and therefore we try to limit the inspiratory pressures provided by the ventilator, so that they are less than 25 centimeters of water. We also try to prevent barotrauma trauma and volume trauma to the lungs by following a philosophy of permissive hypercapnia that allows the carbon dioxide levels to be a little bit higher than we would normally than we would have normally, uh, so that we do not injure the lungs by the ventilator itself. Infants who are hypotensive uh, do often require some volume resuscitation, but we also know that the left ventricle in these infants is sometimes small, and therefore giving too much volume can actually make things worse, causing um, pulmonary edema. So we try to uh, reach gestational age norms for blood pressure. If the patient continues to be hypotensive, We will often add inotropic support uh, in terms of medications such as dopamine or epinephrine. And if patients remain uh, hypotensive, then we often will provide a stress dose of corticosteroids since often these infants are adrenally suppressed. All throughout this process, we use echocardiography fairly liberally in order to um, assess the response to our resuscitative efforts. But also to uh, identify uh, congenital heart anomalies that often re- occur concurrently with the CDH. Um, so, for those patients who continue to be hypotensive despite fluids, inotropes, and corticosteroids, uh, for those centers that have it available, we do provide extracorporeal life support. Um, this is when we essentially put the infant on bypass. Uh, and allow the uh, heart and lungs to recover um, over the next uh, several days.
0: So you you mention um, you've mentioned a few times pulmonary hypertension occurring in these infants. Can you tell us a little bit about why that occurs and what are your recommendations um, for that?
1: So pulmonary hypertension is something that uh, is seen often in. Uh, infants in the neonatal intensive care unit. Specifically with respect to CDH, uh, the pulmonary hypertension is related to the underdevelopment of the lungs. So this means that the uh, airways, the alveoli, and the blood vessels uh, are underdeveloped and do not respond normally to um, oxygen and other uh, stimuli, Uh, In order to uh, help uh, adequately oxygenate the blood. So the management of pulmonary hypertension is actually one of the critical aspects in the initial phase uh, of care. Um, There are non-pharmacological ways to treat uh, pulmonary hypertension, as I discussed uh, previously, but there are specific medications that can be used to help mitigate the effects of the pulmonary hypertension. One of the challenges in congenital diaphragmatic hernia is the fact that a lot of the experience with these medications is limited. Furthermore, some of the data and information for the most widely used pulmonary vasodilator, uh, inhaled nitric oxide, um, is fairly old and was created based on a fairly limited number of patients. The results of these studies suggested that there was really no utility for inhaled nitric oxide, but it continues to be used across Canada and the United States. And and estimates are that over one third of infants will be exposed to nitric oxide at some point during their ICU stay. So nitric oxide is very, very expensive. uh, And thus in our guidelines, while the evidence may suggest that there's no utility The expert panel really felt that there was still biological plausibility for the use of INO in CDH, uh, since it did have an effect in non-CDH infant populations. However, what we were very careful to state was the fact that often the results with uh, nitric oxide are apparent uh, very shortly after instituting the medication. So... And this can be measured with echocardiography. So we stated that if there was no obvious improvement in the clinical status of the infant with the institution of nitric oxide, it should be stopped.
0: Okay, so the definitive treatment um, will be surgery. Some, some, some of these children don't require corrective surgery, but many will. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what your recommendations are for various levels of repair of CDH?
1: Sure. Um, I think this is a very important point, but I also probably think it needs a little bit of clarification. So survival of CDH infants without surgical repair is exceedingly rare. So the clinical challenge is actually to be able to stabilize the infant so that the infant can actually tolerate an operation. Um, and this physiologic stability is a bit of a moving target. We have listed in our guidelines specific criteria that would indicate stability. Um, and in these cases, most patients um, survive and most patients have a successful outcome to their surgery, approximately 80%. However, we we have also shown that even if these criteria are not met, we can still obtain reasonable Uh, and meaningful survival rates in CDH infants. So in general, we will wait until uh, we can uh, operate on these patients. And then the operation is generally a repair of the diaphragmatic defect, either with the patient's own muscle, which we would call a primary repair, or if it's large, using a patch of artificial material, most commonly polytetrafluoroethylene or Gore-Tex, um, in order to fix the hole. Um, this is often done with a classic open technique. Um, people are probably aware of minimally invasive uh, surgical techniques such as thoracoscopy. The problem with these minimally invasive techniques is the fact that the recurrence rate of the hernia is three to fourfold higher than with an open technique. So our recommendations firmly support the use of an open technique when repairing Uh, these hernias.
0: When you're talking Gore-Tex are you talking the same Gore-Tex that we have in clothes and shoes?
1: Yes uh, it is exactly the same material but it is fashioned in a slightly thicker form um, and it can be cut to approximate the size of our defect Uh, and Gore-Tex is used uh, in all types of surgeries uh, cardiac surgery, vascular surgery so it is something that's not new or specific to The repair of diaphragmatic hernias. It actually has a very long history of being a a very useful product in a number of other types of surgery.
0: Now, one of the things that I think sets your guideline apart from some of the others is the focus on long-term follow-up. As we talked at the very beginning of this podcast, we talked about you know advances in neonatal care mean that these children are, which are surviving longer. So, long-term follow-up is an issue. Can you tell us um, what uh, what your recommendations are for that?
1: Yeah, so ideally all infants with CDH should have some form of follow-up over the long-term. In fact, uh, multi-system long-term morbidity observed with CDH is similar to that seen in other chronic diseases. And it not only impacts the patient, but it also impacts family. So what we have strongly advocated for is that uh, because uh, these infants can have problems with growth and development and learning and hearing, Uh, as well as organ-specific problems that affect the heart and the lungs and the musculoskeletal system, we have uh, recommended that all patients should be followed to some extent. There is a specific subgroup of these infants who we have identified as high risk. These are patients who have been discharged from hospital requiring oxygen or who have required oxygen for more than 28 days after birth those patients who've required a Gore-Tex patch repair, which is a surrogate for a large defect, or those who have been placed on extracorporeal life support, all of these infants tend to have more and more protracted uh, complications and morbidity. And these are the specific population of patients that really require multidisciplinary um, follow-up in CDH clinics.
0: Now, I get sort of the the complications of cardiopulmonary, gastrointestinal, nutritional. Can you explain how hearing loss is connected with this condition?
1: Right. So there are two facets to this question. First uh, is that many of the medications that are used during the acute management of a CDH infant in the intensive care unit have secondary effects on hearing. These include antibiotics some forms of medications that uh, induce muscle relaxation, and thus uh, hearing is something uh, that has been identified uh, very early as being affected in patients. Uh, This is not just specific to CDH, this isn't um, actually reflected in many infants who required ventilatory support. Um, One of the other uh, aspects that has been identified is that some patients have hearing issues that may be related itself to the CDH, and this is a, a congenital problem. We still have not put our finger on this, uh, but some people have linked um, hearing loss with CDH, but there is a, it's outside of an iatrogenic uh, form. So hearing is really, really important, and most hospitals have a standardized hearing protocol uh, for any high-risk infant.
0: So one of the important things is for, you know, primary care physicians when these um, when these children come back into their practices is to keep that particularly in mind in addition to sort of some of the things that may be a little bit more obvious, obvious problems. So um, any final thoughts at all? Um,
1: yeah. Again, this is not just one individual who is creating a set of guidelines. This is truly a, a team effort. And uh, I'm really indebted to all of the individuals who were involved in the production of this, of this guideline, uh, I am personally extremely proud of the of the quality of the product that we have produced. Um, I think that our collaborative na- national network of, of, of stakeholders who care for these CDH infants has really sort of stepped up and, and um, hopefully going to lead the way not only nationally, but internationally uh, in the care of these infants. Uh, one of the other things that we uh, need to address now is the fact that Yes, we have created guidelines. We now have to implement them. And this is an entirely different challenge. Uh, We have to be able to identify local barriers to implementation. We have to develop strategies to overcome that. Uh, And we have to have buy-in, not just from the 17 members of our collaborative. And so we are initiating a process now where we will likely do uh, alpha testing of the guidelines in three specific centres, and then look at prospective outcomes over a period of a year once the uh, guidelines have been fully implemented. Our thoughts are that if the guidelines are as good as we think, then they should translate into tangible improvements in outcome. And if we can demonstrate that, then this would be enough evidence and the impetus for all of the other tertiary and quaternary care centres across Canada to implement these guidelines.
0: And I think that's a really great process, because obviously guidelines are only as good as their implementation, and that's hugely important. I think one of the other things, I think, with your guideline is that your group is going to be doing an evidence review every every three years, I think, as you said, effectively making this, quote, a living guideline.
1: That's correct. Uh, we The steering committee's responsibility is to ensure that any new information, data, trial Uh, that uh, we feel is important will uh, be included in our guidelines, and it may change our recommendations. Uh, We've seen that in the past, and I'm sure that we will see that in the future.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Pramod Puligandla, gandla Professor of Pediatric Surgery, Pediatrics and Surgery at McGill University Faculty of Medicine. To read the full guideline he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. While you're there, take some time to browse and listen to our many past episodes. I'm Dr. Diane Kalsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank
1: you for listening.